I had discovered a smoke ascending from a hollow in a bluff and wished to go alone to the place from whence the smoke proceeded to see who was there. I approached the spot and when I came in view of the fire I saw an old man sitting in sorrow beneath a mat which he had stretched over him. At any other time I would have turned away without disturbing him, knowing that he came here to be alone, to humble himself before the Great Spirit, that he might take pity on him. I approached and seated myself beside him. He gave one look at me and then fixed his eyes upon the ground. It was my old friend. I anxiously inquired for his son, my adopted child, and what had befallen our people. My old comrade seemed scarcely alive. He must have fasted a long time. I lighted my pipe and put it into his mouth. He eagerly drew a few puffs, cast up his eyes which met mine and recognized me. His eyes were glassy and he would again have fallen into forgetfulness had I not given him some water which revived him. And again I inquired, What has befallen our people? And what has become of our son? In a feeble voice he said, Soon after your departure to join the British, I descended the river with a small party to winter at the place I told you the white men had asked me to come. We lived happy and often talked of you. My boy regretted your absence and the hardships you would have to undergo. My boy went out as usual to hunt. Night came on and he did not return. They soon came to the place where he had stood and fired, and nearby, hanging on the branch of a tree, found the deer which he had killed and skinned. But here were also found the tracks of white men. They had taken my boy prisoner. Their tracks led across the river and then down towards the fort. My friends followed on the trail and soon found my boy lying, dead. He had been most cruelly murdered. His face was shot to pieces, his body stabbed in several places and his head scalped. His arms were pinioned behind him. The old man paused for some time and then told me that his wife had died on their way up the Mississippi. 
I took the hand of my old friend and mine and pledged myself to avenge the death of his son. It was now dark and a terrible storm was raging. The rain was descending in heavy torrents. The thunder was rolling in the heavens and the lightning flashed athwart the sky. I had taken my blanket off and wrapped it around the feeble old man. When the storm abated, I kindled a fire and took hold of my old friend to remove him nearer to it. He was dead. I remained with him during the night. Some of my party came early in the morning to look for me and assisted me in burying him on the peak of the bluff. Welcome to the Foot of the Rapids, where today we retouch on a format we have not explored in some time, the Great Stories series, in which we examine the writings of just one participant in the War of 1812, and today a very special case. At Fort Meigs, we strive to always relate a balanced view of the war looking at this conflict from all sides equally and impartially. On the foot of the rapids, a platform driven by dramatic primary source material, this can be difficult as there is an overwhelming amount of reporting from an American perspective. Many a time we have found rich additional details and enlightenment from British and Canadian viewpoints, but unfortunately much much less from the American Indian stance, as there is relatively very few written eyewitness accounts of these days. First Nations people recording their histories often in an oral tradition of story and song, allegory and myth. That changes today as we savor the life story of Blackhawk, Makatai Meshe Kiakiak, a member of the Sauk Nation, known widely for many chapters in North American history. Today, we look at his contribution to the War of 1812, and specifically his presence at the foot of the rapids. The opening quote we heard is an immersive and evocative scene with so much visual material described for our imagination to draw with. Blackhawk is laying the groundwork here for what would unfold into the Battle of the Sinkhole in 1815, the final land engagement of the war. We can study the battle academically, dissecting tactics and timelines, but now know the campaign begins a simply driven and romantically inspired quest for revenge, fulfilling a promise to a dying old man atop a high hill in the darkness and the listless magic of firelight. A few episodes back, Lower Your Colors, we looked at the final engagement of the war, 
a naval battle fought in June 1815 on the far side of the world, and promised at that time we would touch on the May land battle of the sinkhole. And so, here we are. Way out beyond the Mississippi, far from impressed sailors and star-spangled banners, far from the defense of Canada against American invaders, surprised Missouri Rangers attempt to turn tide and pin a body of Sauk fighting men, who have been charged by a voice of revenge, had yet to meet that spring with their British trade partners to learn of the war's conclusion. So motivated, perhaps the peace wouldn't have even mattered. And then again, so motivated, it might not even be considered part of the war. I landed with one brave near Cape Gray. The remainder of the party went to the mouth of the quiver. I hurried across to the trail that led from the mouth of the quiver to a fort, and soon after heard firing at the mouth of the creek. Myself and Brave concealed ourselves on the side of the road. We had not remained here long before two men Riding one horse came at full speed from the direction of the sound of the firing. When they came sufficiently near, we fired. The horse jumped and both men fell. We rushed towards them and one rose and ran. I followed him and was gaining on him when he ran over a pile of rails that had lately been made, seized a stick and struck at me. I now had an opportunity to see his face and I knew him. He had been at Kwa'ashkwame's village to teach his people how to plow. We looked upon him as a good man. I did not wish to kill him and pursued him no further. I returned and met my brave. He said he had killed the other man and had his scalp in his hand. We had not proceeded far before we met the man supposed to be killed, coming up the road, staggering like a drunken man, and covered all over with blood. This was the most terrible sight I had ever seen. I told my comrade to kill him and put him out of his misery. I could not look at him. I passed on and heard a rustling in the bushes. I distinctly saw two little boys concealing themselves in the undergrowth thought of my own children and passed on without noticing them. My comrade here joined me and in a little while we met the other detachment of our party. I told them that we would be pursued and directed them to follow me. We crossed a creek and formed ourselves in a timber. We had not been here long when a party of mounted men rushed at full speed upon us. I took deliberate aim and shot the leader of the party. He fell lifeless from his horse. All my people fired, but without effect. The enemy rushed upon us without giving us time to reload. They surrounded us and forced us into a deep sinkhole, at the bottom of which there were some bushes. We loaded our guns and awaited the approach of the enemy. They rushed to the edge of the hole, fired on us, killed one of our men. We instantly returned their fire, killing one of their party. We reloaded and commenced digging holes in the sides of the bank to protect ourselves. While a party watched the enemy, expecting their whole force would be upon us immediately. 
Some of my warriors commenced singing their death songs. I heard the whites talking and called to them to come out and fight. I did not like my situation and wished the matter settled. I soon heard chopping and knocking. I could not imagine what they were doing. Soon after, they ran up a battery on wheels and fired without hurting any of us. I called to them again and told them that they, if they were brave men to come out and fight us. They gave up the siege and returned to their fort about dusk. There were 18 in this trap with me. We all came out unharmed, with the exception of the brave who was killed by the enemy's first fire after we were entrapped. We found one white man dead at the edge of the sinkhole, whom they did not remove for fear of our fire, and scalped him, placing our dead brave upon him, thinking we could not leave him in a better situation than on the prostrate form of a fallen foe. In the end, darkness won the battle, and historians close the book on the War of 1812. Black Hawk's autobiography was recorded in 1833 after the heroic campaign of exasperation and war that bears his name, after his imprisonment, after his tour of the United States as a prisoner. Blackhawk told his story to Antoine Leclerc, a U.S. Indian agent and interpreter. Leclerc, in turn, utilized the skills of J.B. Patterson, a copyist, an apparent newspaperman, to put it into print. While this document is extraordinary and one of the few accounts we have from the American Indian perspective on the war, it is not without some worries from the historian's point of view. We should be ever leery of stories put down by ghost writers, interpreters, or reporters. One never knows if the others involved have agendas of their own or personal feelings to cloud the sentiments, or simply more books to sell that wouldn't suffer from a little embellishment. There is also the age of the storyteller and his distance in time from the War of 1812. Blackhawk was 67 years old at the time of the telling, looking back 20 years. In those 20 years, he likely had learned a lot of the war, of other parts of the conflict, heard reports to influence his take on what he witnessed. This will become apparent as we look at his descriptions of the fighting around Fort Meigs in 1813. He even makes note of his memory by way of an apology saying, quote, I will proceed with my story. My memory, however, is not very good since my late visit to the white people. I have still a buzzing in my ears from the noise and bustle incident to travel. I may give some parts of my story out of place, but will make my best endeavors to be correct." Unquote. In the storyteller's memory, he places the events of the Battle of the Sinkhole earlier in the war, 
not as the final engagement, but coming before perhaps larger and more well-known exchanges, such as Prairie de Chêne and the Battle of Rock Island in 1814. I think we can excuse a gentleman who had been through the incredible journey of hardship, battle, death, and twisted survival that Black Hawk endured, along with so many in the American Indian community. This account reads as a very typical soldier's memoir. He definitely speaks with the hindsight that many veterans seem to have. Knowing the well-documented history seems to affect memory. Despite the lapses of memory in the timeline or the undue influence of additional later learned information, there are still great advantages that can be gained from this work. Rare looks at and the portrayal of American Indian family life within the villages and understanding grievances against Americans and better relations with Britain. For this look, we now go to before the war when the clouds were first gathering. Runners continued to arrive from different tribes, all confirming the reports of the expected war. The British agent, Colonel Dixon, was holding talks with and making presents to the different tribes. I had not made up my mind whether to join the British or remain neutral. I had not discovered yet one good trait in the character of the Americans who had come to the country. They made fair promises, but never fulfilled them, while the British made but few, and we could always rely implicitly on their word. Several of our chiefs were called upon to go to Washington to see our great father. Their great father told them that in the event of a war taking place with England, not to interfere on either side, but remain neutral. He did not want our help but wished us to hunt and supply our families and remain in peace. Our chiefs then told him that the British traders always gave us credit in the fall for guns, powder, and goods to enable us to hunt and clothe our families. He replied that the American trader at Fort Madison would have plenty of goods, and if we should go there in the autumn of the year, he would supply us on credit, as the British traders had done. We all agreed to follow our great father's advice and not interfere in the war. Our women were much pleased at the good news. Everything went on cheerfully in our village, we resumed our pastimes of playing ball, and horse racing, and dancing, which had been laid aside when this great war was first talked about. We had fine crops of corn, 
which were now ripe, and our women were busily engaged in gathering it and making caches to contain it. We arrived at the Fort Madison and made our encampment. The trader came in and we all shook hands with him, for on him all our dependence was placed. He said he was happy to hear we had concluded to remain in peace, that he had a large quantity of goods, and that if we made a good hunt, we should be well supplied. But he remarked that he had received no instruction to furnish us anything on credit, nor could he give us any without receiving the pay for them on the spot. We left the fort dissatisfied and went to camp. What was now to be done, we knew not. Few of us slept that night. All was gloom and discontent. Here ended all hopes of our remaining at peace, having been forced into war by being deceived. Here we can see a simple, common, yet slowly accumulating mishap between the Americans and the native people of the Great Lakes. Ultimately, Black Hawk would travel north to the Green Bay region to meet with Colonel Robert Dixon of the British Indian Department, who had called for Black Hawk by name and reputation, would provide the gifts needed to his people and recruit him to reinforce the First Nations armies in the Eastern Great Lakes, along with many Potawatomi, Winnebago, and Kickapoo. And so begins the Sauk travels to our theater of war to take part in the great campaign of 1813. Here is where we must recall Black Hawk's apology for slips in memory and remark the distance in time between the events described and the story told. To the informed reader, it appears that many of the episodes related were likely things that Black Hawk had later heard and incorporated into memory, but did not actually witness. We will now go through 1813 and examine his writings critically, then later allow you to hear it in his own words. Historians generally agree that Robert Dixon of the British Indian Department was recruiting the Western tribes in the Upper Mississippi region in May of 1813, and this new Grand Army arrived in force upon the Lower Detroit River by June of that year. This makes sense in the timeline as Black Hawk describes taking part in the siege of Fort Madison in the early strokes of the war. September 1812. Following the spring meeting with Robert Dixon, then in 1813, our subject travels on foot from what is now southern Wisconsin to Detroit. He describes passing what remains of Fort Dearborn in modern Chicago. In the mind's eye 
of this host at least, he uses language to make one believe that the abandonment of and battle around Fort Dearborn had just recently taken place and he was walking through its immediate aftermath. But if this is the spring of 1813, the Fort Dearborn surrender would have taken place a full nine months before, at the very least. He even comments that he advised the local population to treat the American prisoners well, though by early 1813 all but one prisoner had either been ransomed or returned already by direction of Henry Proctor, the overall British commander. After arriving in Detroit, he describes a battle, which, not called by name, sounds tactically very reminiscent of the Battle of Maguaga, though this is also not possible, as Maguaga happens even before Fort Dearborn in early August of 1812. However, from Black Hawk's description, we cannot imagine what other battle he might be referring to. Next, he says they moved against a, quote, fortified place, unquote, which we understand to be Fort Meigs here at the foot of the rapids. He reports the action of the first siege of Fort Meigs perfectly, that his job was a guard post along the river, ensuring no one left or entered the American camp. He describes in good detail Dudley's Kentucky Landing, an attack on the British batteries north of the fort on May 5th, and pacifying other fighting men against killing American prisoners taken therein. That the siege being abandoned, they immediately cross over to a second, much smaller fort, and that Colonel Dixon participated in the preliminary negotiations with the young American commandant there. By description, this must be the August assault on Fort Stevenson, 30 miles away on the Sandusky River. The timeline breaks down with these reports of combat in Ohio. The first siege of Fort Meigs coming in late April and early May of 1813 should have been the time when Black Hawk was being recruited in Green Bay. Therefore, he should not be present in Ohio. Nor did the besieging armies move against Fort Stevenson immediately after the May siege. However, the Allied army did move against Fort Stevenson immediately following the second great siege of Fort Meigs in late July 1813. It is our thought that Black Hawk arrived in the Western Lake Erie Theater with the bulk of the Western tribes by mid-June in time to participate in the second siege of Fort Meigs and that certainly his duties could have included guarding the perimeter of the American position. And then the First Nations Army, including Black Hawk, moved on to Fort Stevenson a few days later. As the years passed, our storyteller simply mixed the two sieges in his mind and retold episodes that were likely well known to many who lived at the time of the war. His comments about Dudley's defeat could have been learned in the post-war years and related to the translator as being part of the overall and general story of the War of 1812, using the pronoun we to discuss more widespread Native efforts in the war and not his personal experience and that of his followers.
some curiosities still persist. Many of the events just mentioned, the September attack on Fort Madison, the abrupt cessation of the execution of American prisoners on May 5th, the second siege of Fort Meigs, are all actions or strategies we associate with Tecumthe, the Shawnee war chief. Strangely, nowhere in the life story of Black Hawk does Tecumseh's name appear. Also, if indeed Black Hawk participated in the second siege of Fort Meigs, which seems to make the most logical sense, why does he not relate the great story of the sham battle on July 26th, the clear centerpiece of that action, and instead chooses to give details on Dudley's attack in May he would have missed. There is some outlying suggestive evidence that may support Black Hawk's claims of participating in actions coming earlier in 1813, like the first siege of Fort Meigs. In Sandy Antall's landmark publication, A Wampum Denied, the author claims that British commander Henry Proctor was prepared to move against Fort Meigs with his British and Canadian forces assembled and ready as early as April 16, 1813. But it was Tecumseh who asked to delay an additional five days in order for native ranks to be reinforced with Western tribes, the Sauk being listed among them. Also, Canadian participant John Richardson, a junior officer at the time, makes note of at least one Sauk, Matos, as being present at the American Indian encampment along the Maumee River here. Matos was a noted chief among the Sauk that Black Hawk will later quarrel with as whites continually encroach on their ancestral lands in the post-war period. It might also be noted that Black Hawk himself was only a highly distinguished warrior instead of a hereditary chieftain. The level of respect that he earned over life as a military leader and tactician gave his word the weight of a civil chief in the eyes of many, including his own people, though that was not his official role. If indeed Black Hawk was part of a small reinforcing body that arrived earlier in April to the Michigan Territory, this means either he did not meet with Robert Dixon, or the famed fur trader of the British Indian Department departed from Montreal for Green Bay much, much earlier than historians generally believe, and at a much colder and uglier time of year, one not conducive for easy or even safe travel on the upper Great Lakes. We now hear from the storyteller himself as he details the campaign of 1813 in the Old Northwest. And this will close our show. The next day, arms and ammunition, knives, tomahawks, and clothing were given to my band. We had a great feast in the evening, and the morning following, I started with about 500 braves to join the British Army. We passed Chicago and observed 
that the fort had been evacuated by the Americans and their soldiers had gone to Fort Wayne. They were attacked a short distance from the fort and defeated. They had a considerable quantity of powder in the fort at Chicago, which they had promised to the Indians, but the night before they marched away, they destroyed it by throwing it into a well. If they had fulfilled their word to the Indians, they doubtless would have gone to Fort Wayne without molestation. On our arrival, I found that the Indians had several prisoners, and I advised them to treat them well. We continued our march, joining the British below Detroit, soon after which we had a battle. The Americans fought well and drove us back with considerable loss. I was greatly surprised at this, as I had been told that the Americans would not fight. Our next movement was against a fortified place. I was stationed with my braves to prevent any person going to or coming from the fort. I found two men taking care of cattle and took them prisoners. I would not kill them, but delivered them to the British war chief. Soon after, several boats came down the river full of American soldiers. They landed on the opposite side took the British batteries and pursued the soldiers that had left them. They went too far without knowing the strength of the British and were defeated. I hurried across the river, anxious for the opportunity to show the courage of my braves. But before they reached the scene of battle, all was over. The British had taken many prisoners and the Indians were killing them. I immediately put a stop to it as I never thought it brave, but base and cowardly to kill an unarmed and helpless foe. We remained here for some time. I cannot detail what took place as I was stationed with my braves in the woods. It appeared, however, that the British could not take this fort, for we marched to another some distance off. When we approached it, I found a small stockade and concluded that there were not many men in it. The British war chief sent a flag of truce and Colonel Dixon carried it, but soon returned, reporting that the young war chief in command would not give up the fort without fighting. Colonel Dixon came to me and said, you will see tomorrow how easy we will take that fort. I was of the same opinion, but when the morning came, I was disappointed. The British advanced and commenced the attack, fighting like true braves, but were defeated by the braves in the fort, and a great number of our men were killed. The British army was making preparations to retreat. I was now tired of being with them, our success being bad and having got no plunder. I determined on leaving them and returning to Rock River to see what had become of my wife and children, as I had not heard from them since I had left home. That night, I took about 20 of my braves and left the British camp for home. On my arrival at the village, 
I was met by the chiefs and braves and conducted to the lodge which was prepared for me. After eating, I gave a full account of all that I had seen and done. I explained to my people the manner in which the British and Americans fought. Instead of stealing upon each other and taking every advantage to kill the enemy and save their own people as we do, which with us is considered good policy in a war chief, they march out in open daylight and fight regardless of the number of warriors they may lose. After the battle is over, they retire to feast and drink wine as if nothing had happened. After which, they make a statement in writing of what they have done, each party claiming the victory and neither giving an account of half the number that have been killed on their own side. They, they all fought like braves, but would not do to lead a party with us. Our maxim is kill the enemy and save our own men. Those chiefs will do to paddle a canoe, but not to steer it. The Americans shot better than the British, but their soldiers were not so well clothed, nor so well provided for.